0: morning. (laughs) Let's try that again. Good morning. Ah, that's a lot better. If you have your Bible, take it out and turn to Exodus chapter 19. And if you don't have one, these two gentlemen are getting it to you. Thanks, guys. You may remember that after the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites for 400 years, God rescued them from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And they had been moving en masse for about 45 days from Egypt, and then we read this passage. And I want to warn you, it's a, it's a long passage, um, <clears throat> but it's worth reading. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians.' And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people And set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people, not just the priests or the elders, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot." Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then God immediately speaks the Ten Commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Before I begin, I want to make a, a few uh, introductory statements. This morning we're we're looking at the introduction to the Ten Commandments. It's question number eight. Would you read the answer? I mean, the question and the answer with me. It's not there? My fault. I thought I had sent it, but my, my bad. I'll read it for you. And those of you who have memorized it, <laughs> no phones or tablets. This is a test. If you do know it, say it with me. What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. And of course, this is your com- for the next week, so you shouldn't know it this morning yet. But when we do this next week, you all will know it, right? This is a real challenge, isn't it, to to memorize all this stuff and realize that you got a total of 52 weeks. I just want to encourage some of you that if it is just too much for you, three or four or five weeks, pick one that really hits you and memorize it. Now, I'm not letting all of you off the hook, but there are just some of you who just can't do that. So don't just, you know, throw it away and say, oh, I'm so far behind, I can't. That doesn't matter. The issue is what's in there for you, and you might find one in one to six and another one in, you know, number nine, and it really gets you. Memorize that one then and keep yourself off the guilt trip, Okay. That's number eight. The catechism then covers the Ten Commandments in questions 9 through 12. That's only four weeks, Ten Commandments in four weeks. But we're going to take them one at a time. So when you get to question number nine, you'll use that one for three weeks. Now, I guess that one's not up there either because I blew that too. Yeah, that's all my bad, all my bad. Question number nine says, what does God require in the first, second, and third commandment? But we're only going to deal with the first one that particular week. So it goes on and says, first, that we know and trust God is the only true and living God. And then it goes on and says something about the second and something about the third. So when you get to these multiple ones, you'll be using question nine for three weeks. Does that make sense? And it's complicated. It sounds complicated only because it probably is a little complicated, but but you'll get into it when, when you're there. Now, when we talk about the law in this series, we mean the Ten Commandments. The law also includes a lot of information about the priests and the sacrifices and the feasts and the tabernacle and justice and a lot of other stuff. And we'll mention them along the way when they shed light on other topics, but Jesus carried them out in such a way that they were replaced by him. But that's not true of the Ten Commandments. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Ten Commandments, but he did not replace them. In fact, he actually expanded the meaning of them. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it gets a little intimidating by what he means by you shall not kill. I mean, it's even more than what the Israelites would have thought. And later, the catechism will discuss the purpose, the overall purpose of the Ten Commandments. So I don't want to take away from that now, but I must say this this morning so you know what I'm talking about. The law is not a means to salvation. It's a sequel to salvation. One man said this, Samuel Bolton, the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty in being justified. And John Murray said this, but when we arise from our prostration before the cross, it is not to find the moral law abrogated but to find it by the grace of God wrought into the very fiber of the new life in Christ. If the cross of Christ does not fulfill in us that passion for righteousness, we have misinterpreted the whole scheme of divine redemption. We keep the law to show our love for God. Remember Jesus' summary of the law that we looked at last week. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, that's possible only because the Spirit of God indwells and empowers us to be able to do that. We can't do it on our own. And I also said last week that Jesus took the Ten Commandments and distilled them down to two. Remember that? Well, now we're going to start, (laughs) you grammarians are right, undistilling, no, that's not even a word. We're going to start undistilling them and bring them back up to ten again and see what some of the detail is in love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. So, our passage that we read describes the people arriving at the foot of Mount Sinai, the very place where God had met Moses in the burning bush over a year before. And that's where Moses had argued with God, if you know that story at all, about going down to Egypt to deliver the people. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. But God said to him, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, which he just did 45 45 days ago, you shall serve God on this mountain. So, what we have here is Moses right back where it started at the, at the burning bush. And I'm sure he's wondering what God is going to do. So, he immediately goes up the mountain when he gets there. And very shortly, God starts speaking the passage that we read. And I want to answer just two questions this morning What is God saying? And what is God saying about what he's saying? First, what is God saying? I think God is saying this in this long passage. Moses, let's get these people ready to hear the words that will form their document to live by. So this morning, we're not looking at the words of the document. We begin that next week. This is getting the people ready to receive that document from God. You'll recognize this. We, the people in order to form a more perfect union to provide for the common defense and to ensure to ourselves and to our posterity domestic tranquility to ordain and establish the Constitution of the United States of America. What's that? That's the preamble to our Constitution. Our passage is another preamble. I'll I'll, uh, tighten it up a little bit in just, just a minute. It doesn't begin with we the people or we the believers or even we the children of God. It begins with, I am the Lord your God. This is not arrangement of, not an arrangement of, of people covenanting together to set up a kingdom or to obey God, and it's not an agreement of two equal parties. It's an arrangement of and by God alone for us in which He says, "You are my people and I am your God." Here is our arrangement. And what a document it is. Alexander McLaren says this, An obscure tribe of Egyptian slaves plunges into the desert to hide from pursuit and emerges after 40 years with a code gathered into 10 words, so brief, so complete, so intertwining morality and religion, so free from local and national peculiarities, so close-fitting to fundamental duties that it is today, after more than 3,000 years, authoritative in the most enlightened peoples. Ellicott says this, They enunciate a morality infinitely above that of all the then existing nations of the earth, nay, above that of the wisest of mankind to whom revelation was unknown. It is broad exceedingly, yet searching and minute in its requirements. It embraces the whole range of human duty, yet is never vague or indeterminate. And this is all true... Because it's not the law of Moses. It is the law of God. And it wasn't spoken by Moses. It was spoken by God himself. So the answer to the question, what is God saying, is, Moses, let's get these people ready to hear the words that will form their document to live by. Now, secondly, what is God saying about what he is saying? In other words, how is he getting the people ready to hear these words? Well, first of all, he lets them know that he's the one talking. Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying. Plus, in the book of Deuteronomy, which, uh, in case you're not familiar with what the book of Deuteronomy is, it's, uh, it's what Moses spoke to the people as they were standing across the Jordan, ready to go into the land, and he summarized all of Exodus and Leviticus and part of Numbers into three long sermons, and that's the book of Deuteronomy, So this is sort of a a review for them. And you came near, he said, and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. So God's up on the mountain, and there's hundreds of thousands of people, maybe as many as two and a half million in the valley. And his words pierce through uh, all of that spectacular phenomena of what one author called a very agitated nature, which is such a great description of it, penetrated it through so clearly that they, they not only are able to hear it, but they can understand every word that God says. These folks heard God. Now, I could be wrong, but I can't think of another time in the scriptures when this large of a group of people all at one time heard God say something, especially something as important as this. This is momentous. One commentator wrote this, these commandments were addressed to the ordinary Israelite. Not that they're religious at the end of the day. They're expressed in strong, simple terms, understandable to all, and deal with the temptations of the common man, not of the theologian. And then a bit later in, in Exodus, in chapter 31, we read this. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And then Exodus 32. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. So he not only spoke the commandments, God himself wrote the words of the commandments on the tablets. And did you pick up that they were written on both sides? I had never picked that up before. This is no time for false modesty. How many of you actually realize that, they are written on both sides? Jay. <laughs> he gets the star for today. Nobody else raised their hand. It, just, it just blew me away when I, when I read that. And I think there's a reason for that. I think this is a picture of God saying, this is it. No more, no less. There's not room for anything else, but I want it filled up. Deuteronomy 4:2 says this, "You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it." It's like the words at the end of the book of Revelation, about three verses from the end of the Bible, where Jesus says, uh, "I'm promising some bad news to those of you who either add to or take away from the words of this book. In other words, don't do it. This does not bode well for Thomas Jefferson, or for anyone else who messes with the scriptures. Now, I'm not trying to lift the Bible up above our triune God, because an an author is always more than and greater than what he or she writes. But I think it's pretty difficult to overemphasize the sacredness and supremacy of the very words of this book. Now, this is just a practical thing. I didn't know whether to say this or not, but... I would sure love to see more of you bringing, actually carrying your Bible to church on Sunday morning. I mean, we teach and read and study the Bible. That's what we do here during during the message. And um, I know it's gone out of vogue to carry your Bible to church. And you're going to say, well, I got it on my phone. I got it on my tablet. You know, I believe in phones and tablets. I'm on them all day long. But you know, I'm on my phone for everything. So I'm going to go on my phone for the Bible, too, and it just feels like, well, this is just one more thing on my phone, and it's, just, it's the Bible. So I'm kind of one of those old guy generations, you know, where I like to have the Bible, this very thing, in my hand to do that. Now, you, you're going to do what you want anyhow. I know, but, uh, but, but I encourage you to, to bring your Bible here. Or if, if, you're, if you just can't do that, you're so, you're so technical that you have to use, well, use your iPhone and use your iPad, but have it in front of you. Normally we work right through it as we teach. So, in getting the people ready to hear the words of their constitution, God lets them know that He's the one talking. But now, secondly, um, what does He actually say to them in the preamble to get them ready? And the usual answer is, and this is the true pre- preamble: it's Exodus twenty, verse two. Number one, I am the Lord. Number two, I'm three. Number one, I'm you the I am the Lord. Number two, you're, I'm your God. And number three, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the formal preamble, and then the Ten Commandments follow immediately. Now, to a lot of people, that sounds kind of cold and sterile. It's kind of like the clank of chains or the rattle of padlocks, I uh, like what Ron Mell wrote. People who have trouble with this hear God saying, you mess with me, you step out of bounds, and I'll fry you like a bug on a transformer. Well, I want to show you that a response like that really misses the point completely. Those of you who have a history of of hearing me speak have probably picked up that uh, context is very important for me, where something fits. Uh, Robert Penn Warren, who is a, a great author, wrote this. Reality is not a function of the event as an event, but of the relationship of that event to the past and to the future. In other words, context. And this part of the Bible is no exception. The passage we read from Exodus 19, even though it was long, is not part of the formal preamble to their constitution, but it's so critical as the setting for this monumental event that I personally have labeled it the pre-preamble. I think it's that important. And before the statements, number one, I am the Lord, Number two, I'm your God. Number three, I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Before those three statements came booming out of all that thunder and lightning and clouds and and, and and God's strong voice, they had heard these statements from chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Doesn't that sound Different sounds more caring, more loving, and I want to show this morning that these two statements of three things each are actually three couplets. So here's the first couplet. In the preamble, I am the Lord, and the second part of that is you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians in the, pre, in the uh, pre-preamble. Remember, we're talking about what God said to them to get them ready to hear their constitution. So the first couplet, I am the Lord, and it's spelled with all capital letters, in the scriptures. And that means, that is the name Yahweh. It's the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when he said, who am I going to tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. Uh, It was so sacred to the Jews that they wouldn't even pronounce that name. That that, that name means he is eternal, no beginning. It means he is self-existent, Nobody ever gave anything to him. He's, he's the first cause of all things. He's the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the, the almighty, the all-controlling one. And we've studied some of this in earlier questions of the catechism. And because of who he is, he has an, and I've chosen this word purposely, he has an incontestable right to command and expect obedience just because of who he is. Now, the second part of this couplet, Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You see, no one but a God like that could have done those things. Do you remember the plagues he threw at the Egyptians? Let's review them quickly. Number one, water of the Nile turned to blood, not just red food curling. Blood, blood. Frogs take over the land, literally. Dust became gnats, literally. Swarms of flies, a disease killing all the livestock. Boils on men and other animals. Hail killing all the crops. Locusts eating everything left after the hail, including every leaf on every branch of every tree. Pitch black darkness for three days. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face for three days. And then, of course, the 10th plague The death at midnight of every firstborn from Pharaoh down through the livestock. And every one of those happened on command. And every one of those ceased on command. So there could be no natural explanations for it. It's the power of God doing that. And not a one of those touched even one Israelite, only the Egyptians. And then there was the Red Sea event. Delight for the Israelites and total devastation for Pharaoh and and the mightiest army in the world at the time. This is miraculous stuff. And only a God like the Lord, I am, could pull it off. And so when we broaden the context to include the preamble, the words, I am the Lord, get filled out. And I think they would lead a... uh, a sensitive and sincere Israelite to say something like this. This is a God of power who is speaking these words to me. And I've seen that power firsthand. With all those plagues and that Red Sea experience, I can trust him and obey him. Even though this is pretty scary stuff, not only hearing God speak, but also this incredible thunder and lightning and clouds and trumpet blasts. So that's the first couplet. Second couplet. I am the Lord, your God, and in the pre-preamble, you have seen how I bore you on eagles' wings. It's really significant that uh, the word your in I am the Lord, your God, is singular. God is talking to the entire nation, but also in a unique way, he's speaking to each Israelite as an individual person. To each of them, he is saying, I am your God. I love you. I don't love generically. I love specifically. I don't love en masse. I love individually. I am your God. And this, by the way, is backed up in the Ten Commandments themselves because each of the Ten Commandments was written, you shall not, you shall not. That you is you, it's not y'all. Thomas Watson says this, the commandments concern everyone and God would have each one take it as spoken to him by name. Though we are forward to take privileges to ourselves, yet we are apt to shift off duties from ourselves to others. Therefore the commandment is in the second person singular that everyone may know that it is spoken to him as it were by name. Now, second part of that couplet, how I bore you on eagle's wings. This, this metaphor is, uh, we just had our second great grandchild uh, two, two days ago, and uh, it was a rough pregnancy, but uh, like some of you ladies that are here pregnant right now, I mean, this statement makes sense. This metaphor is nine months pregnant with meaning. I mean, it is full. It is just... Uh, How many of you either read or had your kids read Ranger Rick when you were younger or they were younger? Just a few. Ah, Will, you're not that old either, so I'm glad to see that. (laughs) Uh, Talked a lot about eagles in in Ranger Rick. Talked about a lot of stuff, but uh, talked a lot about eagles, how they love and protect their young. The mama eagle will make a nest at least 8 feet by 8 feet. Now, the largest one on record was 9 feet wide, get this, by 20 feet deep and weighed more than two tons. And you think you have a great crib for your baby. (laughs) The eagle is strong, particularly the pectoral muscles, which support their wings, and they use those wings a lot for their young. Uh, An eagle does not carry her young in her claws like other birds. The young eagles attach themselves to the back of the mother eagle so that any arrow from a hunter down below has to go through the mother to be able to get to the baby on the back. And then when she teaches the eaglet to, uh, to fly, she, she drops him, watches him virtually free fall towards what I'm sure he's thinking is a premature death until at the last moment she swoops down, gets underneath him, catches him on his back, and then I'm sure has to give him CPR because of a cardiac arrest. And takes him back up, then drops him again, and the whole sequence starts all over again. But she is always there to pick him up and protect him. But all the while, she's loving and training and protecting him. This is in Deuteronomy 32. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him, no foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. God saying, that's how I love you. That's how I provide for you. That's how I protect you. And did you know that the eagle will only work with one, the eagle will only work with one eaglet at a time? And so does God, even in this passage. The words in Exodus 19 are obviously to the assembly of the Israelites, but the picture is not of God carrying all of them as an eagle at one time on his back. It is not, I bore you on an eagle's wing, one eagle all at once. It's, I bore you on eagles' wings, many eagles' One by one, this goes right back to God saying, I am your singular God. It's like God is telling Moses, please, Moses, tell them, make sure that you remind them, before I give these commands, how much I love them and am protecting and providing for them. I think, again, this would lead a sensitive Israelite to say something like, this is a God of love who is speaking to me. And I saw that love. On this 45-day trip, when we ran out of water, he brought it out of a rock. When we ran out of food, he, he dropped manna from the sky. And when the Amalekites tried to fight us at Rephidim, God overwhelmed them. He has loved and provided for and protected us. He seems really scary right now behind that power display up on the mountain, but I know there is a heart of love there. I can trust him and obey him. And that reminds me of so many New Testament epistles, like like the book of Ephesians, for example. You've got chapters 1 to 3 where God lists out everything that he has done for us and how much he loves us because of what he did for us. And then you get to the chapters 4 to 6 in the book of Ephesians, and and it's like he says something like this. Okay, now, on the basis of all of that, here are some things I want you to do or not do. There are all kinds of commandments in the New Testament. All kinds. All kinds. That's all out of love from God, as I'm going to show in a minute. So me speaking to you, I must must tell you, little eaglet, (laughs) that when God demands obedience, you and I should never hear the clank of chains and the rattle of padlocks. You and I should hear a whisper in our ear, That says, I love you. I I love you with a perfect love. And I know what is best for you to do and not do. Third couplet. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? That's the preamble. Pre-preamble, I brought you to myself. This is the picture, of course, of, of redemption that just saturates the scriptures. And God not only redeems from someone, the Egyptians, but he redeems them for someone, himself. And again, I think this would lead an Israelite to say, this is a God of redemption who is speaking those words to me. And I have seen that redemption firsthand. I'm out of Egypt. Only because of him. And I can trust him and obey him. I want to add one more thought here. Uh, After God instructed Moses to tell the people in uh, chapter 19, verse 4, see what I did to the Egyptians, eagles' wings, brought you to myself. He then goes on and says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So Israel became a treasured possession of of God, uh, guarded like we would guard our most precious possessions. But don't don't miss the last phrase. For all the earth is mine. All the nations are mine. I think God is saying something like this. I own every nation. And because of that, I'm able to pick you out for something special. If I were just another God among gods, I couldn't do that. But I am the I am, the God above all gods. And I'm making you the crown jewel of a large collection I'm not only the Lord, I am also your God, and I have redeemed you. That is the heart of God who speaks to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and that is the heart of God who speaks to you and to me from the pages of Scripture. A God of power, a God of love, and a God of redemption. And I would guess that if a sensitive Israelite was putting this stuff together, they would hear, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of God. I would think some of the starkness of that would be gone because of what he told them in chapter 19. This makes me think. He is a God of power toward me. I can trust him. He's a God in love with me. I'm secure. He's a God of redemption for me, and I am so grateful. I want to do whatever he says. I can't tell you what studying uh, for this message has meant to me. Many of you know my background. The first 18 years uh, in an environment of do this and God will love you more. Um, do this and God will love you less. I'm not sure that's what they meant to communicate, truly. But that's what I internalized, and it all revolved around commandments like these. I certainly picked up, I am the Lord, do this and don't do that. But somehow I missed, I am the Lord, your God, I care for you. I protect you. I I love you like an eagle does her eaglet. You have my full attention. I want to nurture and train you, and when you fall, I'll swoop down underneath you and catch you. And I have freed you. And I've brought you from slavery to our enemy Satan out. And I've brought you to myself, and you're my treasured possession. Now, because of that, Art, here are some things I want you to do and not do, because I know exactly how you tick. I made you every detail of you, and I know what will bring you the greatest joy possible and what will bring you heartache. And I love you way too much to just let you blunder into heartache and miss the joy I have arranged for you to experience. And by the way, I know you can't pull this off by yourself. As hard as a Dutchman may try, that's why my spirit resides permanently in your heart to live my kind of life Through you. You see, uh, beloved, and I mean that word, the laws given by God are not the commandments of a despot. They're the commandments of a powerful, loving liberator. They are not the walls and barbed wire fence of a prison. They are the fences of a pasture in which he knows we can live and breathe and feed and flourish. They're the environment in which we were created to prosper. They're kind of like the haven designed to keep us free and protect us from going back to prison. Individual prisons of sin. And they're all of that because they're a picture of the character of God. That's who he is. And that's what his desire is for us, to become like him. And they're birthed in love. I I now understand why Ron Mell entitled his book on the Ten Commandments, the Ten-der Commandments. It's a great title. Listen to Deuteronomy 6. Good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. One more thing. What does God have them do to get ready to hear his words besides speaking to them? Why the three-day thing? Did you pick that up in the passage? When he said, Moses, go down, make them clean up, you know, make sure they get ready for when when I talk to them. But God required a ritual cleanliness for the Israelites to be in his presence. Otherwise, he couldn't communicate with them. So he wanted them in the right shape to be able to not only hear his voice, but also want to obey his voice. He he wants them clean when they hear these words. And since Jesus, we're no longer into this ritual cleansing stuff, but we all know about spiritual and heart cleansing. Our hearts can so easily get cluttered with stuff and sin and when that happens you and I know we can't hear God and there are times when we won't even hear God because there's just too much sin static in our heart and over the next week God is going to be speaking these 10 words directly to us and I'm asking you this morning to be prepared Would you join me each week in praying Psalm 139? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And come, having done that. And let me remind you of what the Apostle John says in his first epistle. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My prayer for each of us over these next 10 weeks as we engage these 10 words of God one by one is that we all would be able to wholeheartedly and without any hypocrisy say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them as your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God's love to the Israelites was a Valentine written in stone. Later, it would have to be written in blood. And it could be written in blood only by the perfect lawkeeper, who then, because of that, could become the perfect lamb and shed his blood for us, the lawbreakers. It's all backwards. I should be the one paying for that. You should be the one paying for that. But thanks be to God that we can come to this table this morning because it is backwards. Again, this morning, I would like you to pray your own prayer at this point, following the message and before the table. And then we'll invite you to come up. I'll close in just a moment. So pray silence yourself. Accept each of these prayers, Father, in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.